Welcome in, everybody, once again to the Talking Tide podcast. I am Chase Goodbread of NFL.com and Crimson Cover Television, Travis Ryer of BamaOnline.com and Southern Fried Sports Radio, which you can catch in Tuscaloosa 102.9 FM weekdays with you for the Talking Tide podcast. Twice a week through the football season, we recap Alabama's Iron Bowl victory in this episode. And of course, uh, we will be back a little bit later in the week previewing the SEC championship game between Alabama and Georgia. You can get the Talking Tide podcast at our web host at podbean.com. Also available on various apps, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And with that, Travis, we dive right into what amounted to a, a route by the time it was finished. The Crimson Tide runs away with it in the second half, 52-21. to 21, The final score, a game that was that was tight at the half and, and looked like it, it might be the kind of game Auburn would, would want to get into uh, in terms of just ugly-ing it up a little bit. They get the block punt in the first half, biggest play of the first half by far. Uh, but in the second half, Alabama got some things cleaned up and just kind of took off on them. Yeah, the third quarter for the second straight week was an explosive one for the Alabama offense. But as you laid it out there, uh, a first half that really Auburn at the break probably felt like we could be ahead in this thing. Lost the 75-yard touchdown run in the first quarter to a holding penalty on Chandler Cox. Uh, And if you watch the replay, uh, Cox did uh, definitely grab Xavier McKinney on that play, but oh, we've seen we've seen uh, worse holds go totally uncalled, as we know. So uh, a little bit of a bad break there for Auburn, but you know Auburn was able to do enough on the ground. I thought Chase on early downs in that first half to even get into their tempo stuff, which is really the bread and butter, obviously, of what Gus Malzahn likes to do on offense. And, you know, that caused some problems for the Alabama defense. It was not the best of first halves uh, for Alabama defensively and certainly not uh, in the punting game as Auburn got Alabama's protection unit really outnumbered there with those three personal protectors it was about five Auburn onrushers. A couple of them could have got to the punt. Ultimately, it was Smoke Monday who did for the Tigers. And you're right. Halftime, it's a three-point game. And, uh, you know, again, Auburn probably felt good about where it was at. But, again, you know, if not for a couple of mistakes, Auburn might have been in the lead. The biggest problem for Auburn in the first half that I thought prevented them from maybe leading at the half or getting off to an even better start, so many drop balls uh, by the wide receivers. Uh, Jarrett Stidham on target with some throws early in the game that Auburn just could not come up with, and that ended up hurting them in terms of, um, you know, just having to punt things away that might have been drives that that could have ended up in points. And so uh, that certainly hurt the Tigers for sure. Uh, Alabama uh, in the third quarter obviously just kind of took off. Uh, and in the fourth quarter, a couple of touchdown passes by Tua Tungavaloa really put it away, uh, including the capper to Jalen Waddle that really I thought maybe more so than any play all year showed off his speed. And, and, and there have been plenty of plays this season where uh, Waddle's speed has, has been on full display, but his touchdown, they capped it with Travis – there was a defensive angle there to make the stop on the sideline. I mean, it, it was – it, and he just ran right through it. I mean, he just ran yeah. right through the angle, and, and, and he's gone in a flash. Uh, that, that was 
that that was a play that that I think four receive probably nine receivers out of ten they go down on the sideline. And there's two or three though on this Alabama team that can do exactly what Waddle did on that play, which again illustrates how difficult it is to defend this Alabama passing attack because. Alabama, Tua Tagovailoa had six completions Saturday of 20 yards or more. And four of them went to different receivers. Okay, It's not just one guy, as we talked about throughout this season. And that very same dig route that, that may have been, in all likelihood anyway, Jalen Hurts' last touchdown pass uh, that he throws at Bryant-Denny Stadium, a really well-thrown ball there to Waddle to keep him in stride and to give him the opportunity to, to again, as you said, sort of run through that angle that the Auburn defense had. Uh, we've seen Jerry Judy do that. Saw Jerry Judy do it in Arkansas. Same play. Catches that slant, that sort of dig route. Um, that backside safety or corner thinks, I'm, I'm in good shape. And these guys are so explosive, though, that, that – the next thing you you know, they're up on you, and it's too late. They've got that sideline, and it's off to the races. So, uh, you know, Tua, it wasn't the fastest of starts. You know, Alabama didn't go right down the field and score a touchdown. That's just the second time this year. They haven't done that on an opening possession. Uh, but after he got off to the two of five for 24-yard start, he goes 23 of 28 for 300 yards and five touchdowns. And, Chase, what about his legs? I mean, we saw the design quarterback run make a reappearance uh, in this Alabama offense after a four or five game break. I, I think that was a really good sign for the offense too. There's some obvious confidence where Tua's physical health is concerned, uh, is concerned, coming not only from the coaching staff, as you said, making a call for a design run, but also in the confident way in which he's running the ball right now, and and he did it last week against the Citadel as well, uh, but. You know, we saw him power in for a rush, for a Russian touchdown, uh, where he instead of just going out of bounds like most quarterbacks would do, he bowled his way in there for one. Uh, then you see him on another big play, converting a big first down with with a long run, where he's making a couple cuts in the open field and shaking loose from from uh, tackles that way. So he he's he's running with the confidence that we saw from him uh, early in the season. And uh, you know he, he's he's never really lost it in terms of throwing the ball. Uh, he, he's thrown it well, essentially all season long. So uh, yeah, it 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 brings it, it's an element that Georgia is going to have to respect as much as they have, probably more so than they would have last year in the national championship game because they just did, they didn't expect to see him. Uh, now Georgia now Georgia knows a little something about him. And, of course, we'll look ahead more to the SEC title game in our next podcast later in the week. But he's running well, and, and uh, it's, it's something that Kirby Smart's going to have to account for. Yeah, and that 21-yard scramble was huge early in the game. I believe that was on Alabama's first touchdown drive of the game. It's third and five. Uh, he gets some pressure. And the right side of that Alabama offensive line, those youngsters over there, they had their hands full on Saturday with guys like Derek Brown and Marlon Davidson. So – uh, it, it really made the the the, the fact that that Tua uh, is looking as nimble as ever all the more important because uh, he he did pick up 21 on the scramble that ended up being Alabama's longest run from scrimmage of the game by the way it wasn't a prolific outing 
for Alabama on the ground in terms of running back production. Uh, but all that being said, what a performance by Josh Jacobs, right? I mean, uh, even if Josh Jacobs is on the field for 25, 30 plays a game, it feels like he's out there for 40 or 45 because the ratio in terms of the impact that he makes on those snaps for however long he's out there um, is almost 100%. We've talked about it before. I've said it before. You know when Josh Jacobs is on the field, whether it's catching it, running it, blocking. Um, it's He's as good an all-around football player as you're going to find in the Southeastern Conference right now. And he, he he's the kind of back who you're not always going to be able to tell how effective he was in a given game just by looking at the box score. Uh, if if you're a box score reader and, yep. and, and you keep up with Alabama that way, but you don't watch a lot of Alabama football, and I'm sure, of course, most of our listeners are watching it every week. But but it, but if you're a, a a Big Ten fan or an ACC fan, and you're just keeping an eye on box scores for Alabama, you you don't know how good he is. No, you don't. And uh, again, look at his stat lines: five carries, twenty eight yards long run of, of 13 yards uh, as a receiver four for 53 uh, along a 33 with a touchdown those are nice numbers right but again when you combine everything that he does and and he's become a, a devastatingly good blocker uh, the touchdown run by T- Tonga Bailoa you know you've got Jonah Williams pulling from his left tackle position to the outside and he's joined by Josh Jacobs and you've got Tua Tagovailoa behind those two guys. You, you're going to get what you need uh, in situations like that. That was another third down that Alabama was able to capitalize and cash in on with with Tua's legs, and ultimately it, it went for a touchdown. But um, I, you know, I don't know where you could play Josh Jacobs on defense. You know, because he's his body type, it doesn't really fit linebacker, doesn't really fit safety. Uh, but man, may, maybe you put him at. Uh, uh, maybe the star position or something. I don't know. But yeah. I just get the sense that wherever you put this guy, and we've seen him get the job done on kickoff returns. We've seen him cover kicks. Yep. Uh, you can play him just about anywhere. He would have made a great old school safety from the Stone yeah. Age when you and I were growing up and, <laughs> and, 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 strong, and strong safeties uh, were essentially an extra linebacker. They played on their toes, never on their heels, always came downhill. Uh, he would have been great in a role. If strong safety still – if that's still what the job was for a strong safety, he'd have been great at that. Uh, but you're right. Uh, run, run it back is, is most definitely the, the spot for Josh Jacobs. He's, he's a, a more physical player than Najee Harris. Uh, we've said that uh, – I've harped on that a little bit. You know, Najee, a guy that, that tends to like to bounce it maybe a little bit too often – um, a talented player and 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 one that that uh, that that Alabama can count on in a lot of situations. Jacobs, though, definitely the more total player with the better all-around game and and, and is run and runs with more physicality as well. On the defensive side of the ball for Alabama, Travis, uh, what about Isaiah Bugs? Your thoughts there? He catches a pretty nasty cut block, a legal put cut block, but a pretty nasty one. Uh, that puts him in and out of the game. Uh, he tried to uh, come back with whatever the ailment was uh, and w- was not particularly effective. Sounds like uh, it's it's not a, a bad injury, uh, but 
it was a it was certainly a day where LeBron Ray had to be on his game because he saw a lot of action. Definitely did. That whole sequence was sort of a good news, potentially catastrophic news uh, situation for Alabama because it all happened on that long touchdown run that wasn't for Sean Shivers of Auburn. It was the 75-yarder away from Isaiah Bugs, which on that particular play, similar to almost what you saw from the Citadel last week, that backside defensive end or defensive tackle is going to get cut blocked. They're trying to cut off that backside pursuit, uh, and that, that, that backside offensive tackle cuts uh, his guy, and that's what happened uh, to to Isaiah Bugs on that play. Now, you know he was in and out of that tent about as many times as you and I were at Bonnaroo in 2010. <laughs> I think uh, they did everything they could, Jeff Allen and his staff, to sort of brace him up. They tried different braces. It looked like, uh, but it just wasn't going to happen. And with that, LeBron Ray was a big, big part uh, of the defensive plan moving forward. And I'd say Chase looking at his tackle production. Um, you know, and and, and is that the the activity that we saw him involved in throughout the game? He he answered the bell. Yeah, he did. I thought LeBron played played some pretty good football. He he he's not the physical anchor that that Bugs is in terms of gap control, uh, but he he's he's certainly a, an athletic guy that can that can move around in space pretty well. Uh, he ends up with nine tackles for the game, which tied Dylan Moses for the team lead so strong performance there uh elsewhere around the defense travis uh, i guess shyam carter deserving of some mention as well three pass breakups and really established himself early he did and he can get ready for more of that on uh saturday in atlanta next saturday in atlanta because similar to tony brown you remember tony brown in that game last year was it Nicole hardman for Georgia, that, that yep. Georgia kept getting in the slot and taking shots. And Tony, I believe it was like one of the first plays of the game in the in the playoff national championship game in January, if not uh, the very first play of the game, he makes an interception uh, on one of those of a Jake Fromm pass that was a little bit underthrown. Fromm came back and torched Tony Brown on a deep ball in that same, in that same sort of formation and approach. So, uh, it was good to see Shaheen Carter perform at that level uh, that he did because, again, there's going to be more of those shots coming this week. Georgia is pound, pound, pound shot, pound, pound, pound shot, and uh, they like to do it at that sort of slot corner. But he did play well. You know, I, I'm starting to think, though, I'm starting to get more and more in line with the thought that Patrick Sertan, the second, is Alabama's best defensive back right now. And I know that's saying a lot because Xavier McKinney's had a really nice year. Uh, Deontay Thompson's had a good year, more so a really productive first half of the season than of late. Um, Savion Smith uh, has done some good things, especially in place of Trayvon Diggs after Diggs went down. But the more I watch Sertan just go about his business, especially as a true freshman, I think more and more he's already the best all-around defensive back Alabama has right now. And the numbers may not say it. You can look at the stats and all those things. But just watch this guy, how he goes about his business. I can promise you on next Saturday in Atlanta, it won't be the true freshman corner on the right side of the defense 
that Georgia targets the most. I, I'll go ahead and, and pretty much guarantee you that. No, shots will be coming Smith's ways first uh, if, yeah. if, if, if they're going in any direction. No question about that. Speaking of the Alabama secondary, Travis, uh, Jared Maiden uh, with the uh, targeting call in the Iron Bowl. Uh, I believe he's to miss the first half of the yeah. Georgia game. He's a dime package starter for the Crimson Tide. How does that affect things uh, in the first half next week? Yeah, we saw Keaton Anderson who, as a redshirt junior, actually took part in senior day uh, activities, ceremony, pregame on Saturday. So the expectation, obviously, being that this is it for Keaton Anderson, even though he has a year of eligibility remaining. He's had some shoulder issues, had shoulder surgery after last season. So could be a big, big first half on Saturday for Keaton Anderson, more of a core special teams performer. But uh, maybe he can give him some Will Lowry back there at that safety spot in the dime. Uh, you remember Will Lowry, the former walk-on who sure. participated in those packages around 2010, 2011. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's a loss and it's a concern, but it's definitely not at the level of if you had lost one of your starting corners or Shy Carter, who, by the way, was hit with a targeting call initially in the second half on Saturday only to have it overturned. You talk about a rough situation, but I would think it's Keaton Anderson. Um, they have some other options that they can look at, although, again, experience depth uh, at both safety and corner isn't something they have an abundance of right now. Yeah, it, you know, and the, the Carter hit came almost immediately after the Maiden hit. I mean, it was yeah. bang, bang, one after another. I'm not sure if it was back-to-back plays, but it was. they were close together in that game. And uh, you're right, uh, Maiden and Carter being out, that, that, that would have been a, a vastly larger problem. It, here's, here's part of the good news, too. Georgia's not a lot of four wide receiver sets, not in the truest sense of, of four dynamic guys out there together. You know, Georgia's going to give you a lot of personnel groupings similar to what you've seen in previous years from Alabama. Maybe not so much this year, uh, but Georgia's going to give you two tight ends, and Georgia will give you three wide receivers. And that's like Alabama, kind of pre-2018, that's sort of the the base formations and, and a pretty decent split uh, that you'll see from the Bulldogs in their, uh, their run-heavy approach. What did you make of the Carter hit in, in, in terms of the call? I mean, did you find it to be uh, a, a fortunate call for Alabama that easily could have gone the other way, or do you think it was a, a no-brainer for the for the officials? Yeah, you know, I, you said it. It wasn't all that long after the brutal hit from Jared Maiden. You didn't need any uh, replay no. on Maiden's hit. I mean, it was, you know, Ryan Davis, you, you, you worried about him uh, after seeing – the, the first seeing it real time but then certainly the first time you caught it on replay you're like yeah that's that's definitely illegal and um but you kind of touched on i think you know once the refs see one it's almost like an umpire in baseball gets in a groove of calling strikes if you're around the plate you know what i mean yeah it, 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 the late eric greg you remember him behind <laughs> the plate i mean all you had to do is hit the target it didn't yeah. matter if the target was a foot outside yeah. or inside if you hit the mitt Strike. Ask Chipper you know, Jones Greg. about that. Ask yeah, Chipper. ask Chipper about Eric Gregg. And so I, I think there's some of that too, you know, but um, I think it was close enough that it, it, it made sense to flag it on the field, but seeing it upon review, 
uh, I thought it was pretty clear that it wasn't targeting, although who knows really what, what that constitutes anymore. Yeah, the, the, the rule has definitely become harder and harder to interpret, not easier. I thought what bought Carter – the the benefit of the doubt was that he led he didn't lead he led with his hands yeah, he made contact right. with his hands first and it wasn't hands to the face it was hands to the shoulders and I think to the official that's going to look like more like head to head contact is going to be more incidental and and I realize that incidental head contact still results in a targeting at times uh, but you definitely I, I I got the sense that that putting his hands on on his shoulders first kind of bought Carter uh, a yeah. little a little bit of the call. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, and I know there were some comparisons made to what Devin White in LSU and his hit um, the week before the Alabama game. I thought Devin went a little bit higher even than, than, uh, than did McKinney. But again, it, it's almost like what, what is a catch anymore? Um, trying to figure out week to week what constitutes targeting and what doesn't uh is 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 pretty pretty murky moving on here on the talking tide podcast at podbean.com travis uh we are at the end of the regular season now and so with that uh i'll just take a quick spin around some of the total numbers that have that have come out of this uh 12 and 0 mark for the crimson tide leading rusher damian harris 719 yards on a full regular season i'm going to assume that's a uh, uh, Saban era Alabama low, uh, uh, but of course Najee Harris right behind him at 664. Uh, Josh Jacobs with over 400 yards, and so it's not like there hadn't been effectiveness. Uh, but as we've said all year, the ball's just kind of been spread around uh, left and right. To a tongue of Aloha, his numbers, of course, absolutely crazy. Uh, 70% completions for the year, 189 of 269. 36 touchdowns, two interceptions, a handful of school records, uh, nearly 3,200 yards with as many as three more games left to play. Uh, And Jerry Judy uh, with uh, nearly 1,100 yards now uh, has had an outstanding season as well. Two receivers with double-digit touchdowns, Judy 11, Ruggs with 10. Yeah, the rushing and pass – I mean, excuse me, the receiving and passing yards – you can go ahead and say are pretty much unlike anything we've seen in, in the Nick Saban era or really just about any other era of Alabama football. Now, you, you talked about the rushing totals um, there at the, the start of, of, the, of the, the topic there. Uh, kind of reminds me a little bit of 2010, right? Uh, Mark Ingram in 13 games that season, 875 yards. Yeah. Uh, Trent Richardson with 700 yards. Eddie Lacy with 406. You know, when you look at this top three right now for Alabama, sounds about the same, or at least is very much tracking Absolutely. those same toe. I mean, right on those numbers. Uh, 2010, Alabama had 30 rushing touchdowns in 13 games. Through 12 games, Alabama has 28 rushing touchdowns. So that's the closest comparison I can make. I think the bigger problem for 2010 was that while Greg McElroy and Julio Jones did some nice things together in the passing game, they weren't dynamic enough to compensate for those type of rushing numbers in 2010. Mark Ingram, I think all three of those top backs in 2010 had health issues at one time or another uh, in that season, and that certainly had a big part to do with 
uh, Alabama's rushing attack not living up to it that year. Uh, this year, it's just more about, you know, you've got so many playmakers across the board, including tight end, um, that, that it's it's going to impact, you know, the, the, the rushing totals, and, and that's more of what it's been this time. Some statistical highlights on the defensive side of the ball real quick for Alabama. Travis, uh, Dylan Moses leads the team in the regular season with 70 tackles altogether. Uh, and Williams leads the way in TFLs, 16 of those, which as we've talked about is just crazy for uh, an interior defensive lineman to, to lead the way in that category. 11 quarterback hurries as well, uh, tied with Christian Miller for the team lead in that category. Uh, elsewhere, uh, Isaiah Bugs with nine and a half sacks definitely jumps out. Definitely not a number that anybody would have pegged for him at the beginning of the season. Uh, certainly, uh, Bugs has played far beyond expectations, particularly as a pass rusher. And, uh, uh, you know, elsewhere, uh, Dylan Thompson, three forced fumbles on the season, has been uh, a heck of a playmaker from Alabama, for Alabama, really kind of picked up where he left off at the end of last season uh, when he was playing for so well in place of Hootie Jones. Quentin Williams, through 12 games, has as many tackles for loss as Jonathan Allen had in 15 games two seasons ago. And we both know how big a year that was for Jonathan Allen. Uh, now, Jonathan Allen had 15 quarterback hurries, uh, as you noted, Quentin Williams with 11 after two more on Saturday against Auburn. Here's the thing about Quentin. He lost a half sack and a quarterback hurry against Auburn because he had 15-yard penalties on both of them, had a face mask and a roughing the passer call. Um, So if not for that, you know, his TFLs and sacks and quarterback hurries would be even higher. But, you know, I think that, I think that that it's been a, a really solid year for for Dylan Moses. I mean, the guy is a Buckus Award finalist. Um, but I'm gonna—I I know we're gonna get into Georgia later in the week. But I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, Alabama's linebackers are gonna have to be better than they've been all year long on Saturday against DeAndre Swift and Elijah Holyfield, and when they find themselves matched up with those Georgia tight ends, because Auburn did enough sort of a continuation of what we saw a good bit of in the Arkansas game in October. Auburn did enough good work on Alabama's second-level defenders to make Jim Chaney, Georgia's def- offensive coordinator, think, hey, we got all these tight ends that can catch it. We've got these backs that can do it in different ways. We're going to exploit some of those same matchups on Mac Wilson and Dylan Moses and see if we can get their heads swimming a little bit you know, Mac Wilson busted a coverage on a check down uh, that resulted in a big play for Auburn on Saturday. Uh, you had the double pass from Ryan Davis to Malik Miller in which a linebacker did not check Miller coming out of the backfield on that side of the field. So some of that same old, same old that we've seen, especially in the second half of the season, uh, is going to get checked out, I think, by the dogs coming up here too. And, they, and Auburn was able to do that as well without – 
a dynamite guy as right. the, the the speed outside back. I mean, look, Whitlow, Whitlow's uh, the power guy, and that and, and you know, and yeah. and that offense. He he's he's a between the tackles kind of runner. Auburn doesn't even have the other back. Uh, and, and and when Gus Malzahn's offense is is really firing all cylinders, he's got that back that's just blazing fast that kills you on the perimeter. Uh, the best one I can think of, uh, his name escapes me, but he was—he's the kid. He—he he, he played that role for uh, Auburn's national championship team in 2010. Um, you know, they—they've Malzahn can really hurt you in that regard. He doesn't even have that guy this year. Uh, yeah, Trey Mason type, that kind of back. Sure. Uh, you know, I, 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 exactly, and or even just Carry On Johnson, his recent, his last season. Um, you're right. They don't have that. Auburn doesn't, uh, this year, but we know Georgia does. (laughs) Georgia's got plenty of it at running back and, you know, the edge setting is going to have to be better. I think one of the things that probably haven't been talked about enough, as far as a a deficiency for this Alabama defense, it doesn't set the strongest of edges, at least not in relation to, to previous Alabama defenses we've seen. We saw Auburn take advantage of that on Saturday with the jet sweep to Anthony Schwartz for the touchdown. I mean, that was a soft edge on a jet sweep, uh, both at the, the, the edge defender and the, uh, corner. So those things are, you know, I, I, again, I don't think Jim Chaney watches that tape from Alabama, Auburn on Saturday and says, up, oh, got to go ahead and just kind of sort of concede the run game because, you know, go back to the game in January, Georgia rushed for nearly a hundred yards in the first half against that, Alabama defense yeah um so so uh, again I, I don't think Cheney's going to be uh entering the, the the coach's booth on Saturday afternoon with sort of a, a defeatist attitude I, I think that Georgia's going to feel like you know pretty much what we've done to this point we're, we're gonna we're gonna feel like we're capable of doing it against this this Alabama defense too Swift has made two or three of the most amazing runs I've seen all season in college football he he can really uh, in the open field, he is really nasty. He can make one cut and make two guys a miss, not one. And, and of course, Holyfield's very effective as well. By the, the the Auburn back I was trying to pull up the name on out of my memory banks was Ontario McCaleb, uh, who was who was a, a super effective guy I thought in that Auburn offense and was is p- kind of part of it when it was best. But uh, at any rate, the Talking Tide podcast will move on now. And thank a couple of sponsors that keep us around, starting with North River Dental Associates and Dr. Jack Smalley. For all your dental needs, your family's dental needs, be sure to go to Dr. Jack over at 1100 Fairfax Park. It's off McFarland Boulevard. State-of-the-art office. Uh, They've got state-of-the-art technology. They can keep you reminded for your appointments any way you want. You can give them a call at 752-3506. You can set up an appointment on the web at NorthRiverDentist.com. Make sure you get your teeth cleaned twice a year like you're supposed to, and make sure you do it with Dr. Jack over at North River Dental Associates. Also want to thank Urban Cookhouse, the outstanding farm-to-fire-to-table restaurant at 1490 North Bank Parkway, right off of Rice Mine Road. Vince Hunter and his group do a great job over there cooking on those big green egg smokers. I'll tell you something else, too. It is always clean as a whistle in that place. Every time I go in there, uh, they're, they're, you, 
be hard-pressed to find a, a speck of dust anywhere. They take pride in the cleanliness, and they most definitely take pride in the food over at Urban Cookhouse, conveniently located off Rice Mine Road. It's Urban Cookhouse. I'm going to tell you about Mercedes-Benz of Tuscaloosa out there at 3200 Skyland Boulevard East, home to the best selection of automobiles, both new and certified pre-owned. You're going to find them right now at Mercedes-Benz of Tuscaloosa. The winter event ongoing out there at Mercedes-Benz of Tuscaloosa. You can get all the details at MercedesBenzOfTuscaloosa.com. Go there right now. That selection of automobiles I told you about, well, you can see each and every automobile as it sits on the lot today right now at MercedesOfTuscaloosa.com. Go to MercedesOfTuscaloosa.com first, then make your way to 3200 Skyland Boulevard East for the very best in selection, sales, and service after the sale. It is Mercedes-Benz of Tuscaloosa. also want to tell you about our good friends at Carty and Lloyd, attorneys at law, and Michael Carty and John Lloyd. You're going to team with a pair of attorneys who have provided exemplary service to clients around the state of Alabama and the United States since 1992. That's right. Between them, Mike Carty and John Lloyd boast over 60 years of combined legal experience, and they've done it all while based right here in downtown Tuscaloosa. So give them a call today at 205-759-1554 or check out their website, www.cartylloydlaw.com. That's Carty and Lloyd, attorneys at law. Talking Tide podcast at podbean.com, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Travis Ryer and Chase Goodbread with you for a few more minutes. Looking around the Southeastern Conference on Rivalry Week, Travis. Uh, the Egg Bowl, of course, on Thanksgiving night. Mississippi State rolls in that one 35-3. Uh, we discussed that one in our last podcast. Kind of both saw that one coming. Uh, Missouri over Arkansas in another route, 38 to nothing. Uh, Clemson fairly easily, I guess, over South Carolina in a high-scoring affair. Georgia with the win. Uh, Texas, uh, what about this Texas? Let's just start there. 74, <laughs> 74-72, highest-scoring game in FBS history. It goes seven OTs. It lasts four hours and 55 minutes. I'm going to be the first to admit that I did not stay up uh, to finish that one. I just could not oh, really? do it. Uh, couldn't do it. It. it uh, wow. Good uh, bread. Yeah. What are you, 86 or I, something? I, I, mean... I must be. I must be. Yeah. But certain, the, the ne- definitely on Sunday morning, I was kind of, I was kicking myself. I couldn't go to sleep on it. You know, it was just, it, it would never end. It was amazing. And you had to feel bad for Ed Orgeron because there were probably no fewer than three instances when that game probably should have ended in LSU's favor. And I'm not just talking about in terms of plays that the Tigers could have made. There were some of those too. But as far as how we even got to that point uh, with the Kellen Mond knee down situation before throwing the interception that would have ended the game uh, in regulation. Some other calls uh, once we got into extra time that certainly didn't seem friendly uh, to the visiting Tigers. So that was a rough one. You talk about bad beats. I mean, LSU had that game won, again, four or five different times between its own doing and perhaps uh, some assistance from some others. It didn't happen. And and what about the melee? I don't know if you saw this, but apparently Kevin Falk, which was news to me 
that the former LSU running back and New England Patriot NFL player, outstanding high school player in the state of Louisiana during his prep days, uh, apparently got into a fist fight with the nephew of Jimbo Fisher on the field after Jimbo's nephew, at least that's reportedly who we're told was involved in the fracas, uh, took a shot at Steve Craigthorpe, the the LSU analyst, former uh, head coach at Louisville and I believe Tulsa. And Craigthorpe has a pacemaker uh, because he's dealing with Parkinson's disease. And he takes a shot to the chest from, again, reportedly Jimbo's nephew on the field. Uh, and then Kevin Falk tracks this guy down and goes and tries to go to town on this kid. Uh, it was just a bizarre night all the way around. Um, you wonder, though, big picture-wise, how it impacts LSU's bowl chances. Are they still a New Year's Six team? They certainly would have been with that 10th win. Um, and, and, and with Florida winning nine games now after the win over Florida State, uh, how does that sort of all play out? Yeah, I'll say this about the overtime and the length of that game and how it dragged on. It's it, it, This has been clear, I think, I guess, for, for years. But a game like this just emphasizes even more. The longer a game goes and the more overtimes that get played, the better off you are if you've got the better offense because the defenses get gassed. And it seems to get easier and easier for teams to score the later it goes. This one, obviously, a prime example of that. And Texas A&M has got, in my opinion, more dynamic offensive weapons right now than does LSU, especially when you factor in Mon's ability to to run the football. And that that played it. If you'd have told me before the game that it was going to go seven overtimes, I'd have picked A&M all day. Yeah, although I still don't trust Kellen Mond, man. I mean, there's still situations where even in third downs, I'm thinking, if I'm Jimbo here, I I don't know if I'm letting Kellen Mond sling it around. Um, Now, his receivers came up big for him, and he did make some some really nice throws. He he had some other guys in addition to Sternberger, the tight end. Kendrick Rogers had a huge game for A&M, especially in overtime of that game Saturday night. But uh, Joe Burrow played his butt off now. Yeah. I think Burrow threw for three, ran for three, rushed for over 100 yards. Um, that was that was peak Joe Burrow on Saturday night. If, if there's a way he can win football games as a quarterback, uh, that's what that's how he did it uh, against A&M. But you're right. I thought A&M, def- uh, LSU defensively especially, was gassed. Um, and the, it just seemed almost impossible – for the Tigers as we got three overtimes in, four overtime in, uh, to, to get a stop. And I, Travion Williams, getting back to the weapons, Travion Williams would start for LSU all day, in my opinion. Um, oh, no doubt. I mean, Nick Brissett's had a nice year for LSU, but he's a plotter compared to, to Travion Williams. And I got to give it up to Travion Williams. You know, with Jimbo coming in there with more of that pro style and between the tackles, uh, approach to the run game, I had my doubts uh, about Travion Williams is a good fit for that. We knew that he was a speed guy. We knew that if he got in space, uh, he was extremely dangerous. But, you know, this is a guy I want to say had 30-plus carries against LSU on Saturday night. And and not just on Saturday night, but throughout the course of a 12-game regular season, he showed me he's got some toughs and that, you know, he can hold up uh, even if he isn't the biggest back in the world. 
Real quick before we close things out on Talking Tide, Travis, the Florida-Florida State game we'll touch on, a game that you and I kind of grew up watching, uh, that rivalry. Uh, the Gators end up winning 41-14, a road win for Dan Mullen, and uh, capping a truly awful year uh, for Willie Taggart in his first season coaching the Seminoles. Yeah, and the problem you've got with it, if you're a Florida State fan, it isn't that the lengthy bowl streak came to an end or the long winning streak over Florida in that series. It's that the mental lapses and the everything that points to a poorly coached team, an undisciplined team, continued right through the 12th game of the season. I want to say Florida State, in terms of penalties, finished the regular season dead last in all of FBS. Um, mm. So, you know, that's that's the, the major red flags, the yellow flags, I guess you could say, with Willie Taggart, is that they, they did uh, eventually win more games than I think maybe most of us thought they would after the first couple of weeks of the season. But in terms of the... The, the, the attributes you look for in a team as far as improvement in a first-year uh, regime, uh, a lot of that didn't show up throughout the course of the season. Yeah, very different story for Dan Mullen in his first year at Florida, 9-3 yep. and three now on the year and uh, with a, a chance with a bowl victory to, to kick things off with uh, a 10-win season for UF. Obviously, as is the case with, with any of them, uh, his ability to win his division is, uh, in time, going to be uh, the real measuring stick. Uh, but uh, to to go nine and three, maybe ten and three uh, in his first year, given what he's got to work with, particularly obviously the offensive line at Florida, uh, up and down, not as bad as Florida State's, but not anywhere close to where it needs to be. Felipe Franks, as we as we've talked about, not even necessarily a great fit for that offense, and. And uh, Mullen certainly acquitted himself pretty well in year one. That is going to do it for this lengthy edition of Talking Tide. Went a few extra minutes here. Enjoyed it, though, as always. Be sure to check in midweek when we preview Alabama's SEC championship game against the Georgia Bulldogs. For Travis Ryer of BamaOnline.com and Southern Fried Sports, I'm Chase Goodbread of NFL.com and Crimson Cover Television. We'll talk to you later this week right here on Talking Tide.